sermon is brought to you by Shofar East London. Together, living out the fullness of Christ. We hope you enjoy this message. It's amazing to, to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Summers of the West, also known as the Wild Wild West. Um, well, actually, it's a sleepy city. They call it sleepy cities. But I don't know whether Summers of the West or East London. I don't know which one of the two is more laid back. Anybody familiar with Summers of the West? What would you think? Summers of the West or East London? East London, eh? It's okay. All right, but East London has got a very special place in our hearts. Tell the guys this morning, it's uh, uh, my wife and I and our kids, we try and come here at least once a year and just chill a bit. We disappear off the radar when Andre and Sonica, when they go away on holiday somewhere else, we uh, move into their house, we switch off the phones, and uh, we just, just chill. Your beaches are amazing. They're very ever uh, crowded, if at all. I love Ganubi. It's amazing to go down there and just love that, that spot. And yeah, I've fallen in love with this part of the world. So, so thank you also just for, for welcoming us and for praying for us. As Andre said, it's been a massive privilege for me to, to serve as the apostolic team leader for us as Shofar. And then would never have thought my wildest of dreams that God would choose someone like me. Um, I'm a little bit of a reluctant leader. I think I'm a better follower. So I live to, to, to see other people excel and, and love to just serve them. And, uh, but that's a little bit of my comfort zone. And so God always pushes you out of your comfort zone, doesn't he? And so uh, when he asked Nick and myself to lead in this position, we were very humbled and would not have been able to do it without the support of our friends, uh, Andre and Sonica and the rest of the apostolic team, family. They've been amazing. And um, this afternoon, we were watching some rugby after, after the church service. Put on my Springbok sweater. It was amazing. But afterwards, I'd take that sweater off again, put another sweater, because I just felt I needed to shake some things off. I was glad we won. It was amazing, praise God. But we were also a little bit frustrated with Fuff. And uh, I think we, uh, Andre and myself, we had our wives there. Uh, our wives are sort of the fans of the fans, right? So they're supporting us because we're supporting the rugby. If we weren't there, they wouldn't have gone to watch the rugby, but they're supporting us as we're supporting the Springboks. And so they know that uh, a good fan needs a good fan. Uh, so when you're going through a tough time, there's somebody to, to pray for you. But it reminded me of um, our epic times in Stellenbosch when we were watching cricket together or listening cricket together. A lot of the same emotions, Andre, a lot of the same ups and downs that we, that we went through. And uh, so... We never would have thought, it was about 14 years ago, well, Nick and myself, we married 16 years now, and you were at my wedding brother, remember? So we've known each other for longer than 12 years, um, and it's been amazing to, to journey together, and I never would have thought that uh, starting off as, as friends many years ago, that we would have the privilege of, of serving God together in a way that we are dreaming together. Uh, you just never know who's sitting next to you, do you? You just never know what God has in store for them. You don't know God's destiny, God's plan for them. And so you, you might think you're just partnering with somebody to pray for their cat or to pray for their big toe. You might be partnering with somebody who's going to be the next president of the country, next CEO of a massive company, a founder of a school or the hospital. You just don't know. Or an amazing mom that's going to raise a world changer. You don't know whom you're partnering with. And so as we're talking about living lives with generosity, I think one of the key elements about that is to understand that what we might look at, if we look at this list, there's something that's just practical and it's actually profoundly spiritual. And so I want to encourage you to continue in this journey of trusting God to show you what you must do, where you must get involved. And I just want to see how many of you guys were here this morning. Can I just see how many of you? Okay, so quite a few of you and quite a few of you weren't. So I'm going to need to recap quickly, all right, just to bring the rest of you into the loop as to where we were this morning, and then I'm trusting God to be able to finish off. But I'm, I'm trying to condense about 43 years of life into two sermons, all right, so, so bear with me. But Andre said tonight I can go bigger and longer. I can upgrade my sermon from this morning. So next level, all right, so I'm going in for next level tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for tonight. Thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, for keeping us sane during the Rugby, Father, we thank you for your mercy upon all of us. God, we, we thank you that we can celebrate who you are in our lives, that you've given us passions, you've given us life to enjoy, and even something, Lord, as seemingly trivial as a rugby game, 30 grown men running off a little ball, Lord, that we can enjoy 
Father, even those things in our lives, Lord, and that you enjoy us enjoying things. So thank you for the joy of life. Thank you for being able to be alive, Lord, and to see your goodness manifesting all around us and through us, Father. And I pray that tonight you will have your way with us, God. I pray that tonight you will speak to each one significantly, powerfully, intimately, Lord, like only you can, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This um, morning, I started off just by sharing this story about um, the power outages that have been ravaging our country. And uh, over there, we, we have old, uh, old Satan, the devil, Lucifer, appearing. He says, hello, I'm the prince of darkness. And then that guy says, oh, sweet, my mate, are you from Eshkom? <laughs> and, and there's a little sign that says, power problems. And we've got a lot of power problems, naturally speaking, in our country. But the greater power problems that we have is spiritual power problems. That very often we have those problems in government and we have those problems in society because we have those problems in church. The reality is that, that government and society around us is simply a reflection of the state of the church very often. And so that God one day is going to ask the church, church, what did you do with South Africa? Church, what did you do with the people around you? Church, did you take the light that I've given you and did you spread that light? And so this morning, I, I started off with John 1, verse 1 to 5, and I'm just going to read verse 4 for you guys tonight. That in Him was life, speaking of Jesus, who became the Word, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so it says that Jesus, in Jesus was, was life, and so without Jesus, there's no true life, there's existence, we're taking up oxygen, we're taking up a whole lot of space, we, we do things, but there's no true life in Him. Without Him. Within Him, we have all the life and the light that we need. I was in uh, the UK a, a while ago, and I was astounded by this beautiful place at uh, um, Eastbourne. It's a little coastal town at the, on the UK coast. And they've got these massive cliffs. Uh, beautiful, stunning, awe-inspiring cliffs. Incredible sunsets that you can view from those, those cliffs. And it was so amazing when Nikki and myself, when we got there, all we wanted to do was worship God. All we wanted to do was fall onto our knees and thank Him for His creative power. The sad thing was that that specific spot was the second most notorious spot for suicides in the whole wide world. That hundreds of people commit suicide there. That they've got chaplains driving up and down looking for people who want to jump. And I was astounded by that because there you have a first world country with working infrastructure and with all the things which we normally think if we can just have those things, then our lives would be sorted out. If we can just have a better working government, better roads, better this, better education, no crime, and then all our problems would disappear. But that's not the case. Because if you don't have Jesus, then you don't have life. It doesn't matter what else you have. And so God comes through His Word and He says that in Christ there was life and that life was the light of men. And we talk about an environment of wanting to grow in our generosity. And I want you to understand that when you are living generously, you're not just doing um, a little gift like giving clothes to someone or, or blessing somebody with a cup of coffee. You're giving them life. You, you're taking the light that is inside of you and you are imparting that life into their darkness. Um, we see that the kingdom of darkness is the kingdom of death. And the kingdom of darkness is the kingdom of death. And I, want to, I don't want to bore you with the statistics, listen to this morning's sermon, but those who are trapped in poverty, those who are trapped in darkness, they are dramatically more at risk to things which we would take for granted. They die of diseases which we just get a pill for. The, the violence, the gender violence, the, the uh, vulnerability to, to, to sex slavery and labor slavery is immensely more uh, higher within poorer communities. And we live within these communities. So the communities are all around us. And so when we think about being generous, we are not just thinking about wanting to do something on a church calendar and tick it off at the end of the month. But we are thinking about how can we take God's life and spread that life? How can we have God's life and God's love invade the spaces around us? And when I was looking at this and Andre asked me to share a little bit around generosity and what has happened in my life, for me, and the way it manifested in my life, my family's life, was that love looked like an invasion to us. 
It looked like a, a, a one kingdom invading another kingdom. The kingdom of light invading the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of love invading the kingdom of bitterness and of hatred. The kingdom of forgiveness invading and overwhelming the kingdom of unforgiveness. And so when we talk about generosity, when we talk about living generously, what you are in actual fact doing is you are enlisting for warfare. You are enlisting for warfare. You are saying, I'm putting up my hand to join the army that's invading the kingdom of darkness. And there are these two opposing kingdoms. And, and we know that in John 10 verse 10, Jesus says that the thief has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And so when we look around us and we see the, like um, we heard this evening, those, those youngsters, those little babies that have been abandoned. And, and babies get abandoned by their hundreds and their thousands in our country every year. Why is that? Because there's a kingdom of darkness that's wanting to destroy that baby's life. There's a kingdom of darkness that's wanting to destroy that mom's life. But when we get involved, we're taking God's life and we're taking God's light into those situations. And so when you go, just before you go to watch the rugby on the 2nd of November, and you go to King's, what's it called? King's house? King's, King's children, children's home? You are taking life there. You're taking light there. You are invading an area the devil thinks belongs to him. If you want to get involved in spiritual warfare, get involved in the lives of the orphans. Get involved in the lives of the vulnerable. And, and some of you guys are going to go, you're going to wash a little child's face, or you're going, to, you're going to push a child on a swing, you're going to throw a child up in the air, and, and to you it might just be something physical that you're doing, but it is actually something immensely spiritual. That you are, you are joining God's army in cementing something in their child's life, giving them hope, doing something in their spirit that they can't even understand. But you are joining the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come so that they can have life and have it in abundance, so that it overflows and you have that life inside of you. And so when we talk about living generously, we have to understand that what I give doesn't come from myself. What I have to give doesn't come from my bank balance, doesn't come from my nice thoughts, my nice background. I am tapping into God's supernatural provision, His Zoe life. And I'm bringing that Zoe life to that situation. Because man's love, man's affection cannot do it. I mean, we follow the Me Too social trends taking place. We follow uh, social media and you will see how stars are, are falling. Pastors, worship leaders, philanthropists, people that, that, that people would look up to. They are all falling. Why? Because human love just isn't good enough. We're not taking human love. We are taking God's love. God's love. And all we want to do is to be part of the, the, the circle, the cycle of the supernatural generosity that God is wanting to manifest through us. And in my life, this, this battle between darkness and light, between poverty and God's generosity played out in many different ways. And, and I'm going to jump around a little bit. But this picture, this picture was taken in Beaufort West towards the end of last year. Um, 2018 it was in December. It was hot, extremely hot. But we went to Beaufort West. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys just go to Beaufort West for a holiday. Anybody think you sit down, you plan, hey, I'm going to take my family to Beaufort West. Hey, anybody like that? You should. It's an amazing place. All right, you should. But we went there for my cousin's wedding. And I was born in Beaufort West. Beaufort West has got all sorts of wonderful and strange and painful and exciting memories for me which I'm not going to go into now. But on that picture, you've got me standing in the middle, my, um, my brother, three years older than myself, on my left, my beautiful wife on, on his left. Um, she's fellowshipping with Sonica at home, but sends her love as well. Then my mom in front of me, my cousin Gibbethan on my right, and then his wife in front of him, and then my youngest brother to Gibbethan's right. My youngest brother is pastor now at Live Village. I shared with Andre this morning, I think you guys should consider taking a mission trip to, to Live Village. It's an amazing place where they look after about 200 orphans. It's incredible to see what God is doing there and how God is bringing together NGOs, businesses, and churches. And uh, they've got a church in the middle of that center. Uh, the, the, the Sharks are some of the brand ambassadors for Live Village, um, amongst others. And my brother is pastoring there with his wife. Gibbethan was worship pastor within Shofar for a long time. He's now also at the Live Village, and he's finishing his... Uh, commercial pilot's license now. His wife is a pastor. 
My mom is an intercessor and a prayer warrior. My brother is a drummer and an engineer. And my beautiful wife can do everything at any time. All right, she's an amazing discipler. She's uh, um, uh, my hands, my ears. She uh, hears things when I'm in a conversation with pastors and I'm chatting to pastors. Hey guys, how are you doing? And everything's hunky-dory. It's fantastic. My wife comes and she says, you must pay a little bit more attention there and there. She hears things because she's speaking to the ladies. And the ladies tell you the truth and nothing but the truth. All right? And so uh, I'm so thankful to her. I'm thankful that she was brave enough to join me in this crazy quest of uh, serving our church family in this way. Would not have been able to do it without her. I'd lived in about 10 different homes when I was growing up. My wife lived in one home her entire life. And uh, when we got married now in the last 16 years, we've moved about 12 times. And so it's been a roller coaster journey for her. But she has always just said to me, just tell me one thing. Did you hear from God? If you heard from God, then we can go. So um, it's, uh, it's been an exciting journey for me. A few days after we went to the wedding in Beaufort West, the main event really for me was this one, where my little girl, Kate Rose, got baptized in Beaufort West. She had made up her mind before we went to Beaufort West that that, is was, that was where she was going to get baptized. All right? And she gave me the task, Daddy, I want to get baptized in Beaufort West. And I'm like, you don't understand. You don't just get baptized in Beaufort West. It sounds like a line from Lord of the Rings. You don't just take the road to Mordor. You don't just get baptized in Beaufort West. All right? It's a place that's dry and empty and the dams are empty. And there's no water. They switch off the water most of the time. But the Lord provided for us a guest house, and that guest house happened to be built upon this vein running underneath the ground, the only vein there in Beaufort West. And that street was the only street with water, and it happened to have a swimming pool. <laughs> and so God vindicated Kate Rhodes, Rose's faith, and she was baptized within Beaufort West in the middle of December, one of the hottest days I've ever encountered. But the amazing thing about her life is that she was baptized in the Holy Spirit when she was three, tongue-speaking little girl. She is as naughty as you can get as well from time to time, so don't be fooled by the cuteness, all right? She's still having to work out her salvation with fear and trembling, but she's amazing in the, in the way that she understands God's love, in the way that she's a possibility thinker, for whom nothing is impossible. And I want to tell you, watch the space. She's going to change the world. The amazing thing about her life and her story is it started with my story. And, and I got saved at the age of three after my dad shared a story with me about um, Solomon says, God, I want wisdom. And God says, shop, you've asked the right thing. Because you've asked for wisdom and not riches, I will give you wisdom. And that story struck a chord in my heart. So much so that I had a dream that night about God appearing to me, Jesus appearing to me. I woke up in the middle of the night, went to my dad, woke him up and said, Daddy, I had this dream. What does it mean? And he led me to salvation. He said, the most important thing you can do, the most important piece of wisdom you can ask God for is to help you to surrender your life to him daily. Not just invite Jesus into my heart, say a little prayer, but to surrender to him. And so it's been an amazing journey from there. From the age of three, four years old, surrendering my life to the Lord. I hit a speed wobble. I told the church this morning, hit a bit of a speed wobble, backslid. But I came back to the Lord when I was five years old, when I had a divine confrontation <laughs> with a fear of God behind the closed bathroom door, my mom and a wooden spoon. All right, I, I came back to the Lord. I understood the folly of my ways and how the wages of sin is death. And it's much better to repent and to not fight with your brother. And so... Um, I'm thankful for a mom that loved me enough to discipline me. Okay? And, and since, since I surrendered my life to, Lord, to the Lord, my journey has been a journey of God's prevention. God hedging me in. God protecting me. God using my pagan friends to prevent me from sinning. So I grew up as a pastor's kid. My dad was a duomini in a Dutch Reformed church. And we would move from town to town. And every time we would move to a new town, I had this this, this, this urge just to be known as Heinrich. Not the Dominus kid, not the pastor's kid. And I was hoping for a couple of weeks where guys wouldn't figure out who I am so I could just sin for a bit. You know, just, 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 just be one of the guys, you know. They would invite you for action movies. Right? You had action movies and then you had action movies. And, and these things were, were rated, all sorts of weird things. And, and then I would also want to go along and the guys look at me like, Aren't you saved? I'm like, I didn't even say a word yet. How does this work, God? This is so unfair. 
And I remember getting to the place where I wanted to start sinning, or well, drinking and smoking actually. And one of my friends, who was one of the worst sinners on the school, said, Heinrich, if you touch a cigarette, I'm going to beat the living daylights out of you. Because you are the only reason why we still have hope for our lives. So God used my pagan friends to prevent me from starting a very destructive habit of smoking and drinking. And that's been the story of my life. Even when I ran away to America to go and teach there, um, two things I said I'll never become. I'll never become a teacher. I'll never become a pastor. Right? So I taught for eight years and I'm pastoring right now. <laughs> so as a teacher, I ran to the States wanted to pursue my own dreams. And even there, I think, oh, now I can just, oh, nobody knows me. Now I can just go ahead and sin. And then, you know, just like there's somebody who was in Shofar with me in Stellenbosch who lives down the road from me. She invites me to church last, like, a couple of weeks and I'm there. I'm like, oh, my goodness, Lord, are you not going to have me get away with it? And it's like, no, you've surrendered your life to me. I've got a calling upon your life. And today I'm living that calling. Today I'm, I'm fulfilling that calling. And, and there's more to come. But you know what? My calling, my destiny, my testimony didn't even start with me. It started with my dad. And, and it started with my dad because someone lived generously towards him. Someone, someone manifested the spirit of generosity towards my father. And there are four things. I touched on two this morning. But the impact of living generously. The first one is that, that generous living, if we truly surrender to the spirit of generosity... In other words, not just surrender to something that we do, but to the spirit of generosity, a lifestyle of generosity. It is invasive. It is incarnational, in other words. In other words, the spirit of generosity invades my own life first, invades my thinking, invades my desires, invades my motives, invades my budget, invades my, my, my holidays, invades my private life, what I look at, how I look at, all of that gets invaded by the spirit of generosity. And then it confronts my culture, it confronts my traditions, it confronts my makeup, it confronts my personality, it confronts all of my excuses, <laughs> confronts it. And so when we embark upon this journey of generosity, we find that it is a disruptive one. I mean, we have somebody here encouraging us to go to a place to play with, with the orphans. And it's like, it would have been better if I'd never known about that. But now I know about it. Eh? I mean, if you sometimes feel like, oh, shucks, man. If only I didn't know about it. Now I know about it. Now the Holy Spirit is on my case. And now I'm going to fight with my excuses. And I could have used the World Cup as an excuse. But now Andre came and said, he's changing the time. And now I've got to, But when, when we want to live generously, Truly live generously. There is a place where me and Christ have to wrestle this thing out. Who's going to be on the throne? The Trinity of I, myself, and me? Or the Trinity of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son? Who's going to call the shots here? In which city am I going to be living? The second thing there is that as the gospel is invasive and incarnational, it's also transformative. In, in other words, it, it invades the person's life to, to whom we are giving generously. And, and something happens in a person's life. One of the things that the gospel does, the gospel takes victims to overcomers. The gospel doesn't leave room for, for, for excuses. The gospel doesn't leave room for us to blame the, the previous generation or blame the government post or present or to come doesn't leave us with excuses. The, the gospel comes and says, I've given you Christ the hope of glory inside of you. And maybe your past hasn't been great, but now I, the great I am, I'm with you. And now things can begin to change slowly but surely. It's transformational. And so I told them the story this, this morning about this man, Kulbus LaRue, if you can go to that, that picture the old gentleman there, and, and he was the man that, that experienced a profound, profound encounter with Christ's love when he was a farmer outside Valiersdorp, experienced God's love. God's love came upon him. He, he gave his life to Christ, and then two things happened. He understood that he had to open up the farm. He was a strong man over that area. You know, a strong man is someone who has control over an area who has control over a region, control over a home, control over a budget, the key influencer. And he was that for that farming community. And he understood they had to open up the farm for the gospel to be preached. And he understood that he had to do something drastically to change the environment of the farm, where the people who lived on the farm were addicted to, to alcohol. And so, Kubis LaRue, 
accepted the spirit of generosity. It invaded and confronted his spirituality and his professional life. And he began to wrestle with God. God, God, how does this, how does this look like? I'm a farmer. It's the height of apartheid. It's, it's my, 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 the economy of my farm and my, my legacy is at stake here, God. What does being a Christian mean to me? I'm surrounded by farm workers who are trapped in alcoholism, who are trapped in so much despair. How, what does it mean? And God says, bring in the gospel. And the gospel started to be preached. And then God said, rip out the vineyards and the wine. Get rid of the wine, plant apples. I'll share more detail this morning. But because of him allowing an evangelist to come and preach the gospel there, my father, as a 12-year-old, gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of one man that decided, I am going to allow the spirit of generosity to flow through me. Even though it cost him a whole lot of friendships, even though it almost split the LaRue family in three. He said, this is what I feel. I've got a conviction in my heart. We've got to rip out the vineyards. And we've got to plant apples. And they said, you are crazy. Why are you breaking something that is working? He says, I've got to do this. Because the Spirit of Christ is compelling me. You see, it's different if you just do this because it's a good idea. But when we follow Christ, there comes the inevitable place where there's a cost that you have to count. There's an inevitable place where you and your wife, has, you, you've got to wrestle through what does this mean for us. You've got to wrestle through it with your budget. You've got to wrestle. You as a church, you are having to wrestle through what does it mean to live generously. How will, it, how will it change the way we do things? How will it change the way we are spending our money? And I love just the stuff you guys have put on here where you are challenging each other to say, let's give to other churches. Let our funding not just go to our own building, to our own stuff, but we want to partner with others and we want to bless them as well. So that is what happens. The gospel confronts our own selfishness. And it's not just about us. It's also about others all around us. And so this, the story con- continued. And, and Umkubus LaRue went through hectic tribulation and persecution from the people around him. But today his farm is a flourishing farm. His sons are, are farming there now. And many people are coming from all over to go and look at the models that they have established. And many, many other farms have since started to plant apples as well. Because God, strangely enough, when He says, Given shall be given unto you, knows what He's talking about. God, strangely enough, knows that the safest, best place for us is not within our comfort zones. It's not within our safety zones. It is within His will. Doesn't matter how it upsets our culture and how it upsets the way we are doing things and how it freaks us out. The best place, the safest place for us is within His will. I'll never forget the first time we heard the call to go to Pretoria. Uh, the, the, the head apostolic team back then came to me and said, Heinrich, we've got this position in Pretoria. We would like you to go, but we don't want to put pressure on you guys. So we want you to take your time and, and we would like you to think about it. Then, then you let us know by this afternoon what you think. <laughs> so I put down the phone and, and Nikki's like they want us to go to Pretoria right I'm like yes and she's like you better have a word <laughs> so I've got a word and so we went we know what we said when we got married we sang that song Jesus I will go with you to the ends of the earth but, but the two of us sort of spoke about it and we said as long as it's not Sodom and Gomorrah Pretoria and Johannesburg. So we ended up being in Pretoria for four years and Johannesburg for three years. I've repented the right of that prejudice in my heart towards those two beautiful cities. Because we feared those cities. We feared the crime. We feared the violence. We feared just living in a big city. But the safest space for us was within the center of God's will. It's where we had the most amazing experience, the most amazing times. We grew the most. So comfort doesn't equal safety. The will of God equals safety. It's the best place. And that's what Umkubus Leroux experienced. And, and as the gospel was preached to my dad, and, and remember, I showed you the pictures, and I wanted to show you the picture as to what our family is like now. And We're not perfect. But we weren't like that always. That wasn't in our script, naturally speaking. Because when the gospel found my dad, the gospel didn't find my dad within a safe environment. It found my dad within an environment where he had a whole bunch of things up against him. If you can go back to slide, it says transformational. The, the culture my dad found himself in was one of fatherlessness. His, his, his father was a World War II veteran, came back from World War II, a broken man. And even though he was quiet on the outside and people around him, they knew him as, as, as Uncle Matthew, this quiet man who played the violin, couldn't hurt a fly, except when he was drunk at home. 
Then his kids didn't want to be around him because then he would become violent. And nobody knew that about him except my dad and his, and his sisters. And so my dad learned from an early age that you don't go to your father if you want comfort. You don't go to your father if you want protection. You, go, you don't go to your father if you want nurturing and affirmation. With, within my dad's bloodline, within us, the so-called colored community, we are a mix of all of, of, of bunch of different bloodlines flowing into our veins. Right? You shake us. And out would pop an Afrikaner, out would pop a Khoisan, out would pop an Englishman, out would pop a Khoza, out would pop an Indian, shake us some more, and you'll get some other stuff popping out there. We are mixed, good and proper. All right? And so this, this name, Khaled, was given to people from mixed descendants. Didn't know what to do with us. We weren't black, we weren't white, and so we were like, like in between. But, but with it, a large portion of our, our legacy is slavery, and, and slaves were brought to to our country from Indonesia and Malaysia and all sorts of other parts of the world to come and work here. And the men were used very often as thoroughbreds, as, as the strongest men were, were given women to, to, to conceive children with, and then those children were sold again. And so from an early age, the, 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 the cycle was established that men make children, but they don't father them. And, 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 and with it also, there were, there were children born from from sailors that visited the brothels in Cape Town. There were children born as, as farm owners, slept with the women that were working for them. And some of those children were incorporated into the established society, and most of them weren't. And so the, the, the cycle was perpetuated that there's this thing of children being born outside of a wedlock. There's the sense of illegitimacy. You, you're not good enough. You don't belong. Nobody loves you enough to fight for you. And that was in my family bloodline. And that was the environment in which my dad grew up. And he grew up within this, this fatherlessness, the sense of illegitimacy, plus this tremendous alcohol abuse that took place on a, on a weekend basis because the farmers would pay their farm workers very often with what they called the DOP system, the DOP stelter. So they compensated them with alcohol. And it started many, many generations before that as they came and they traded with a coin, they traded with indigenous people, and they would trade cattle for alcohol or, or some other materials. And so it was deeply ingrained. And so we have this thing called the alcohol-fetal syndrome, where, where kids get addicted to alcohol while they're still in their mother's wombs because their moms are addicted to alcohol. And so, and so that, that was the environment in which my father grew up, and so marriages didn't last, very few children born within a healthy family. Shortly after my dad gave his life to the Lord, around 12 or 13 years old, I only discovered this much later on in his life, as he was heading off to, to work, a, a drunken older man grabbed him, dragged him off in between the rows of trees, put his hand over his mouth, raped him and told him that if you ever tell anybody, I will kill you. And so, and so he had, he had the fatherlessness, the sense of illegitimacy, the alcohol abuse all around him, plus the sexual abuse that came to crush his identity. He had, he had a limited education, had to leave school when he, when he finished primary school because there were no options. He had to work so that his, his sisters could go to school. And there was the political segregation and the political pain of the time. But when the gospel was preached, when that evangelist went there, and the farmer opened up the farm and the evangelist preached this message, a very simple message that said that Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. The creator of the universe loves you. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan for your life. And where you are right now is not where you have to finish. Something happened in his spirit. In spite of that entire culture in which he found himself, a slavery to all of those things. And, and my heart breaks because we often go back to that farm. We go to stay there and rest there a bit. And then I would see so many children and young men and people absolutely hopeless. I would see the condition on their faces. I would, I would sense the absolute brokenness in the spirit. And I would know that could have been, should have been me. Except for the fact that there was a man that lived generously. Because he lived generously, there was an intervention. The kingdom of light had this confrontation with the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of light overcame overcame because of one man's generosity. And so the transformation that took place within my father overcame the fatherlessness and the illegitimacy. If you can go to that next slide. And so there you see myself and my two, my two brothers and my youngest brother's little son. And, and, and we know the love of a father because my dad was an affectionate father. My dad was there for us. 
My dad was in ministry, but he prioritized us. He would carry us around on his back. He would lie next to us. Some of my fondest memories would be afternoon naps. I would put my, my head down on my, my, dad's, my dad's chest, and I would fall asleep listening to the beating of his heart and smelling his brute cologne. Anybody remember brute? <laughs> Soap on a rope. He broke the cycle. He had no example of what a good dad should be. But the Holy Spirit taught him. And he broke the cycle of fatherlessness and illegitimacy. So much so that none of us were born outside of wedlock. We knew the protection of a mom and dad who loved one another and still love each other. And all our children could be born within wedlock. And through the grace of God, because I experienced the love of a father, the Lord laid it on my heart and my wife's heart to take in a little boy that, that, that his mother left him when he was a very young age. And he said, it's been a journey of 14 years with him, and we're growing with him, and he's, and, he, and, he's, and he's like my own son. Because there's something that I understood from my dad that this generous giving has to not stop with me. It has to be passed on to those coming after me. The alcohol abuse and the marital disintegration stopped when my dad said, yes, I'm surrendering to the power of God's love. It stopped. The cycle stopped. So my dad, through the power of the Holy Spirit, said, I will never allow a drop of alcohol to come across my lips. And so we grew up in a home where there was no alcohol abuse. We don't know what it's like. We had neighbors that were beating each other to a pulp every weekend. We had to intervene and, 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 and get the ladies away from the men. We, we saw those things all around us, but our house was a safe space. It was a safe space because my father said, the cycle of destruction stops with me through the grace and the power of God. And they are celebrating their 49th wedding anniversary this year. A transformation took place. It could have been so different had it not been for man that chose to live generously. The sexual abuse, the devil, I don't know where they had an idea. I don't know where they knew what he was doing when through the kingdom of darkness tried to overwhelm my dad, tried to suffocate him, tried to... to to crush his identity. Didn't know that, that instead of crushing him, that that pain would be an avenue, would be a doorway into my dad's ministry. That he would end up ministering to people who come from environments of sexual brokenness. That he would write a book and write a thesis on inner healing that would come from his own pain. You see, the gospel isn't afraid of our pain. It invades our pain and then it uses that story for God's story. Steal Andre's line. My first year of teaching, I was a young man, I was impressionable, I was but naive. I, I went to a party organized by some older gentlemen that, that uh, were at the school where I was at. It soon became clear I'm the only guy from my age group there, and, and there were Two other guys, and soon became clear those two other guys, they actually had a relationship with one another. Soon became clear that these guys were near to being saved, and the alcohol flowed and everything. I became very uncomfortable, and I, I've got to leave. It's late at night, but I've got to leave, and they convinced me to stay. And I went to the one room to go and sleep. In the middle of the night, felt the cold, clammy hands of someone on me, and I froze, freaked out, didn't know what to do. And the very next moment, the other guy came in, this man's partner, Started pulling the guy off me and said, What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you? Da, 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 da. And God used that guy in that moment when I was paralyzed to rescue me. And I believe that there was a, a generational thing that, that was coming after me. But because my dad had said, No, I'm blocking this, because my dad was praying, because my dad was saying, This stops with me, God actually protected me, nothing happened to me. Nothing happened. Because you see, when you allow the spirit of, of generosity to, to, to flow through you and flow into you, it takes you from a victim to a protector. And my father fought for us, fought for our purity, fought for our protection, and prayed for us and prays for us still. The gospel of generosity is transformational. Umkubus the Rue blessed my dad with this, this, this car, allowed him to finish his studies. He was the first in his family to finish university, the first in his family to, to graduate. And don't have time to get into the story of that car, but my dad called it Samuel. Prayed from God. Prayed from God. So the gospel is invasive. 
it is transformational, and it is communal in its impact. So I grew up with this awareness in John 8 verse, verse 31. I, because of these stories that my dad told me of, of what happened when all of these interventions took place and, 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 and how God had just poured out provision into our lives, I grew up with a tremendous faith in God. One of our favorite sayings as a family was that, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It was more than just a saying. It was something that I, that I knew in my heart. And, and even when we transitioned into this new leadership season, and there were a lot of things we had to work through. It came back to me over and over and over again. What then shall we say to these things? The challenges we're facing. If God is for us, who can be against us? It was ingrained in my heart. It was part of my expectation. And so these stories of, of generosity shaped my faith in God. But you know what? As I, as I grew up, I had a challenge. I had a challenge. I believed God. I could see God's provision. But I began to become aware of, of, of some things that just didn't feel right to me. My dad was a minister in the church. And I, I never could figure out why were other, other ministers allowed to minister in our church. Other white ministers allowed to minister in our church. My dad was never allowed to minister in their churches. I could never figure out and it didn't make sense to me why when we had to go to the grocery store in, in, um, in Gary's, the only grocery store in, in Gary's, that we had to go around the corner and we had to get our, our groceries through the little window and we couldn't go through the front door. I, I couldn't understand why when I was going for my dentist appointment, they would, they would steer us away from the front door and down the passageway so we could go to the back where there was a separate dentist chair with separate instruments. I couldn't understand those things. And, and as I was growing up, I be, began to become more and more frustrated with the reality of things I'm noticing around me that when we would visit the, the Cape Town beaches going from Gary's and Beaufort West where there weren't any beaches, that we couldn't go to any beach. We had to go to designated beaches around Macassar. Normally those were the ones where you had all the rocks and the stuff. And I couldn't understand why my friend, when he, when he decided he's going to go to any beach, why he made the front page of the burger and he was arrested for going to that beach. I couldn't understand why when, when finally they opened up the, the neighborhood so that everybody could stay anywhere where they wanted to and we could finally move to a house in town, in Uppington, closer to my dad's work, why for weeks we would have rubbish in our yard from the neighbors in the in the street, and I couldn't understand my cat disappeared. Why one day I found my cat dead in one of those rubbish bags, and and, and more of these things began to happen. And I went to university, and I discovered things about why why our country was in the way that it was in there. There's an anger that began to grow inside of me. There was a resentment that started to grow, even towards my dad, because in, in all the years that I that I that, that I that I lived with my dad, and I and I asked him questions about dad. Why would the Europeans have a bench here in Boxburg? Why would the Europeans need a bench in Boxburg? It doesn't make sense. I thought it's for the Italians, for the guys coming from Europe to come and visit. And that's just for the Europeans only. Only they are allowed to sit on that bench. And we might, it just didn't make sense to me. And my dad never once spoke evil about the government. said, son, we pray. Son, our future is in God's hands. Son, we forgive. And, and yet, as I was growing up, there came a time when I felt, Dad, you should have told me more. Dad, you should have told me about your pain. Dad, you should have not protected me that much. So much so that one day when I was walking down the streets of Stellenbosch and, and I, I was studying there, and I looked at all of these beautiful big houses, and I was so angry. I looked at these houses and I thought, it must be amazing to live a perfect life. It must be incredible to live within a home that you've got everything that you need. And I'm sure that your family is perfect. It was only later on that I discovered that very often behind the biggest homes and the highest fences lie the deepest pain. But from somebody's perspective that never had that, it looks perfect. It looks perfect. And so the one year I went back home to, to Uppington and we were part of a congregation called Agape Christian Fellowship. And, and, and it was a community that was a generous community. It was a community that, that pulled my mom and my dad and us three brothers into their fellowship. It was a community where for the first time I heard boys my age call my mom and dad, not O Nancy or O Albert or Albert or Nancy, but called them Um and Tani. It was revolutionary for the time in which we, we lived because it was a sign of respect 
to my mom and my dad. It was, it was something small and something seemingly insignificant, but for me, it was healing. For me, I experienced communal generosity. For the first time, I had people who came from the church and visited our home. One of the boys introduced me to Michael W. Smith, Carmen, DC Talk, White Heart, White Cross, the Garmon Key. Most of you guys probably don't know who they are, but they were Christian bands during the, during the 80s. Opened up a whole new world for me in terms of Christian music. Before that, we just listened to Jimmy Swaggart and Yandavet. But they came and... If you're born in the 90s, you wouldn't know who they were. But these guys lived generously and introduced me to a whole new spiritual world. And I won't forget this one morning, I was sitting in, sitting in church and the pastor was ministering and he, he asked me a question and I just got up and I walked out. I was just so angry. My dad came outside, one of the elders put his hands over me and around my shoulders and said, speak to me, son. I just put my head on his shoulders and I just cried. I said, Dad, why didn't you tell me? Dad, what do I do with what I'm feeling? He says, get into the opposite spirit. You've got to choose right now whether you become angry and bitter or whether you forgive and keep your heart soft. Get into the opposite spirit. It's probably one of the most profound words, lines has ever spoken to me. Something I apply every time. Get into the opposite spirit. Love. Love harder. And love more. And so today, many of, my, of, of the sons, the kids of my dad's peers who were in ministry with him, when I this afternoon put on my Springbok sweater, they would put on their all-black sweater. Because deep down, they are still angry. Deep down, they still can't identify, can't relate. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, and I'll be done now. I'm thinking to myself, if, if it had been for my father who taught me how to live generously with forgiveness, what would have happened if this opportunity to, to shepherd and lead this movement that consists predominantly of white people, if I was an angry man, if, if I had power but I was angry, would my heart even have been ready to be in a position where I can serve from that place? So the spirit of generosity goes beyond what you can possibly think. You see, we can be generous with our giving, but we need to be generous with our spirit as well, with our values, with the things that we believe in, the way that we do life. Don't just give something, give yourself. Impart yourself. Because you don't know who you are ministering to. And so within that church environment, so much healing came to me as I just allowed myself to be angry. And I could speak to some of my white friends and just say, guys, this is, it hurts me, the fact that you don't know that our matric exams aren't happening at the same time. Back then, we had different matric exams. One for the Board of Colored Education, Black Education, White Education. And so when you guys get prayed for youth for your matric exams, mine is only two weeks later. Something small, but something which mattered to me. And we could have this conversation like, but we didn't know. So how could you not know? So we didn't know. And I understood that we just didn't know. And as we started to live generously, we started to know. We started to listen. The shofar is London. I believe that the spirit of generosity requires of us also to listen to one another's stories. Before we just give, listen, ask. Go where maybe you're uncomfortable to go. But go there. Being a generous church family often speaks more powerfully than outward ones of acts. And as I finish this off, generosity is transgenerational. The young man there holding his son in his lap, does he look familiar to any of you guys? Any of you guys recognize him? Do you recognize him now? He's the grandson of Umkobus. So I'm teaching in Paul Ruiz, and I share the story of the difference one man can make. And how one day there was a farmer that 
that gave uh, Volkswagen Beetle to a young man. And I share the story, and one of the kids put up her hand, it was Rhenish and Paul Ruiz together, and she says, Sir, where was this farm? And I says, Outside Villiersdorp. And she says, What's the name of this farm? And I says, I say, It's, it's called Burad Dane. And she says, Can't be, it's my grandfather's farm. And I'm teaching the grandchild of the man that changed my dad's life. And she comes to me afterwards and she says to me, my grandfather feels like his whole life was a failure. He hasn't meant anything to anyone. And I say to her, you go home and you tell him that he's changed my life, he's changed my brother's lives, he's changed my children's lives. You go home and you tell him that he was obedient to God. And I will forever be thankful to Umkobus. A few years after that, Umkobus passed away and my dad did his funeral. Today, Etienne is on that picture. He's in my summers of the West congregation. And I dedicated all his babies to the Lord. His other cousin is in one of our other shofar congregations in Paul. His sister is in shofar. Some of the other cousins are in shofar as well. Who can write a story like that? Only God. Did Umkubus know when he believed in that young man that one day that young man's son will shepherd his children, will dedicate his great-grandchildren, will love them and support them, and they will partner to change the world. We're dreaming about starting an orphan village. Did he know? No, he didn't. He just saw a practical need and he took the first step. And the first step was all it took for God to do the rest. Lord bless you. Thank you for listening. Find more on Shofar East London's podcast channel. Let's do life together.